Welcome to this week's episode of Starts and Grafts. For those of you joining us for the first time, I'm Connor and each week I'm joined by an emerging artist to discuss their journey so far, how their work's been affected by the pandemic and what the future holds. This week I'm joined by a director, writer and producer who after years of performing as a child found that his talents were best suited behind the camera. His short film Still Young was released this year after receiving awards at a variety of film festivals in 2019. Marcus Spalding, welcome to Starts and Grass. How are you doing? Hello. I'm very good. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. What a lovely intro. That's really nice. I'm always so kind. Quite a lot of my guests always have that response, actually. They're like, oh, thank you, Connor, for gassing me up. I was sort of expecting just, oh, he's a bloke and he does. <laughs> but thank you. But no, thank you so much for joining me for a chat because you are actually our first guest that is more likely to be found behind the scene mm. rather than in front of the camera or on stage. And I think it's really important that we hear what the creators behind the scenes have been up to during lockdown. That's the part I'm I'm always really interested in anyways, is the behind the scenes of this stuff. Even, even you know, like I, I've been listening to the podcast and the musicians you've had on have been very interesting, but I've always been wanting to ask questions about what goes on behind the scenes and about their kind of process. So, so yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a good call. Well, let's dive straight in because I think a really good starting point to the conversation is your short film Still Young mm. which I watched over the weekend and it's fantastic oh did you oh, yeah actually I did thank you. I checked out on YouTube so anyone that's listening you can find Still Young on YouTube it was released earlier this year but was featured in film festivals last year is that right that's correct yeah it had a bit of a mad time getting made it was originally my grad film for my university course but I, I kind of I spent ages trying to write this this huge thing and squash it down into something we could shoot in a week but on the third day of shooting my main actor Adrian fantastic actor he snapped his Achilles tendon oh wow on the third day of filming that film which slightly ruined the entire schedule so we, we kind of just had to like throw out everything else he, he, had, he went into physical therapy for a year in fact just to like get the muscle to come back and we had to cobble together something that would work for the university and then continue shooting the year after so we actually we started shooting it beginning of 2018 and finished it sort of February 2019 just in time for kind of like all the festival entries at the end of 2019. So you're pretty familiar with how fragile a filming process can be then I suppose when lockdown came along did you have any projects lined up at that stage? Well yeah we had a few that we wanted to make but we had one that we've just shot called what now which was actually we were sort of in production of it or thinking about it before the lockdown and the whole point of it was uh write something small and contained that that we could make quite quickly now obviously you you say that to yourself you say oh yeah write something easy and quick and then it never actually ends up being that it ended up being that we had to get a car put it on a low loader you know attach hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of equipment to it and drive it around north london which is more complicated than just you know <laughs> internal car night two people walking so it's always more complicated than you expect so so yeah a couple of things had to be put on hold but we were able to go through with that one and amazingly quite successful i think i'm looking forward to talking about that a little bit more later on so going back to still young yeah. for anybody that hasn't seen the film could you tell us a little bit more about it what's it about yeah, so it's set in 2009, 
So just as all the British soldiers were coming out of Iraq, the Iraq conflict, and it follows a military man called James Shepard. He was a, a corporal and he was in charge of a unit of men in Iraq, including his, his lifelong friend, Dutch. But when he was out there, something awful happens and, and he loses this lifelong friend and he sort of blames himself for it. So we kind of start the film, we pick up, he's come back, he's uh, riddled with PTSD and he really doesn't know how he kind of fits back into normal society. He's really not, he's not coping very well. But he also meets the son of his friend who died, Reuben, and Reuben's just lost his dad and he is getting into fights at school and he's struggling to fit in as well and he and he's got so many questions about how his father died that nobody's giving him any answers to he's being treated as a child so when james comes into his life he feels like he's an intrusion and that he you know he was something to do with my dad's death and i blame him for it and so so initially these two very different characters don't get on they kind of clash but they slowly realize throughout the film that actually they're the only two who understand each other you know they're the only two who, who lost the same person and they kind of need each other so they, they sort of the film's about them and their relationship and their kind of troubled pasts and the way they've found each other sure it's such an intricate relationship that you seem to explore and the film as a whole like you said deals with quite difficult subjects like ptsd I mean, what made you want to make a film about something like that? What was inspiration behind it? It was a couple of things. It's weird when we talk about inspiration and ideas because they come to you in strange ways. I find if you, if you sit down and you say, OK, I'm going to think of a film now, and it's going to be great. You will come up with just like the most cliche ridden, you know, you'd be forcing tension and drama. It would be awful. Whereas I find the best ideas, they, ju they just smack you in the face where like, you're on the bus or you're out for a run or something. And I'd been, I'd been listening to a lot of um, Cat Stevens, who I love Cat Stevens. Oh, wow. Him. What? <laughs> One of my favourite musical inspirations of all times. And this podcast could quickly become in some sort of Cat Stevens fan club. But I'm going to let you continue. But just to hear somebody else my age have that love of Cat Stevens is incredible. Well, I've, I've adored him ever since I was young because he was my dad's favourite artist. He loved Cat Stevens, and his the song he always used to uh, always reminds me of him, his father and son. And uh, just as like a little bit of trivia, there's the, there's the line: "It's not time to make a change. Just relax, take it easy. You're still young. That's your fault. That's that's where the title kind of came from." But I've been listening to a lot of Cat Stevens, and uh, I lost my dad when I was quite young. So the character of Reuben was feeling very similar things that you know I sort of felt and went through. And so whilst listening to Father and Son one day, I just I just had this kind of the, these visions of this this young boy kind of fighting and railing against the world. And at the same time as that, I've been I've been spending a lot of time with you know who Billy Billingham is. He's the he's the SAS guy off Who Dares Wins from Channel Four. Yes, he was your kind of advisor, military advisor, wasn't he, for the film? Yeah, I had a good chat with him about military stuff and about PTSD and about all of that kind of thing. And I found these two inspirations bleeding together really well. So I thought, okay, so what if, what if you take a man who doesn't fit in the world and has, is close to giving up and then you put this vulnerable child in his wake and so he sort of has a reason to, to keep battling. He, you know, he blames himself for his friend's death, but he finds a way of redeeming himself. You know, he's got to make sure this kid's going to be all right. So that was essentially how the heavy subjects came into the film, the, the, the ideas of PTSD and the ideas of loss and grief, you know, because all three characters, the three main characters are James Rubin and then Rasheen was the mum. And they're all dealing with grief in their own different ways. And they all dealt with it similar ways to how I think 
I did and my family did. Like I internalized it and got very kind of quiet about it. The mum in the film, and I, I feel like my mum in real life just sort of ploughed on with life and, you know, everything was normal and everything had to go on as planned. And she did it for the sake of us. And she was amazing like that. You know, she could do that. And then and then obviously James, the soldier character, takes it on a, on a very visceral level because he was there. So, yeah, that's how all those different inspirations sort of bled in. So it's an extremely personal film that you then, you know, you wrote yourself, you directed it and produced it, which is a hell of a lot of responsibility to take on. Oh, my God, I know. <laughs> what, what made you want to take on all different really important roles within the film's production? I feel like I had to I had to write it because of the personal experience angle. People people always say write what you know and I agree with that to some extent. You at least have to root something in what you know. And so I, I felt I had to write it. Directing is is the thing I'm most interested in. And I obsess over that kind of thing. And I feel like when it comes to something that you've written yourself, you understand all the motivations and intentions behind it better than anyone else sort of could. So I feel I had to do that. And then producing it, um, I don't have a lot of money, so I can't pay a nice big producer to come and like fix the film for me. So it was a lot of, okay, well, I'm going to have to source the equipment and I'm going to have to call these locations. And like, we shot quite a convincing little Iraq flashback. Extremely convincing, in my opinion. Oh, thank you very much. The place we filmed in was a place called Icarus, and it was a, like a big warehouse. And the company that owns it, their job is to train medics going out to Afghanistan. So the idea is they put them in the most realistic situation possible with these streets made up and they've got big flashes and muzzle flashes and guns and explosions and all sorts of things. So when I went, I saw that their, their online presence didn't have particularly great promo videos. So I said, if I could shoot here for a day, and I gave you the footage, would that be like an okay trade-off? And, and they said, yeah. So a lot of indie producing is just sort of beg, borrowing and stealing any way you, any way you can. So yeah, mainly the reason I decided to do all three was just I felt I had to. Yeah, and I think, well, an important part of a producer is getting people to invest money into a production, isn't it? Yeah. And is it easier to sell your own ideas to people? I've never been a very good picture, annoyingly. <laughs> like, I, I, like sometimes I write a script I'm quite fond of, but then I'm very bad. When someone says, oh, what's it about? I'd rather just go, I'll just read it because don't make me don't make me try and sell it on you. Mm. But yeah, when it's something personal, you, that's kind of like another string to the bow almost. You kind of can get them to invest in a personal story. That It's not this kind of fantasy that you've made up. It's grounded in very real things. So I think... Yeah, it certainly makes it easier. For Kids Still Young, we did a Kickstarter campaign. We did a like a crowdfunder for a few months and managed to raise about five grand from that, which for a short film doesn't usually happen. I know feature films tend to get a, a bit more funding, but short films, it's quite hard to raise that kind of money. So yeah, I was very lucky to get that. And, and obviously lots of family and friends were very generous with that. So that helped. I'm always fascinated by the producer side of things because it's is it very much something that you learn on the job by doing or is it something that you were prepared for beforehand when you were studying or anything like that? The thing about producing is I hate producing and it's because I am I, I am actually quite bad. You kind of need lots of motivation and you need lots of this kind of go-getting attitude. You have to have organisation, which I'm totally devoid of. But when it's something that you've made yourself, it kind of it kind of forces you to be good at those things because the only thing worse than the, the, the effort it takes to produce a film which is huge is making a bad film especially if it's such a personal film you know if you you, you can't go in with a 
ahead going, okay, this is a personal film, but it's going to be bad. You have to make it as good as possible. So producing certainly your own stuff that you care about is definitely the way to go for me. I think producing something you don't care about, there's, there's, there's no point. You have to be so resilient. You have to push through all the problems and you have to solve all the problems. And because you're kind of captain of the ship, everyone looks to you when things go wrong or, you know, I mean, you turn up on set and nothing happens unless you say we're doing this. So yeah, producing producing your own stuff, much, much easier. It's that personal element as well. Like you said, it's that investment that you've got. I've spoken to a lot of performers, for example, that have said, you know, they put so much into an audition and because it's their hobby and their passion as well, when they don't get that call for the role or whatever, it hurts even more. Oh, yeah. As opposed when you don't see your vision come across the way you'd like it to and you've written, directed and produced the film, it must hurt even more. And that's why you've got to be so set on getting it right. Like you said, and having that, we're going to make it perfect from the outset. Absolutely. You have to go in with the intention uh, that you're going to try and make it perfect, knowing that you can't, but you have to you have to go in with that same level of effort, definitely. If it is personal, it compounds the stress and the effort because because you care so much about it and, and any little thing that goes wrong stresses you out more. But you know, stress isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a good motivator to make you get things done. You know, you, you, you finish each day, you watch back the footage. Often you think, what on earth have I made? What, why, what, what have I done? But it's because you're holding yourself to that standard that if you didn't, the end product wouldn't be as good. So you kind of have to have that, that stress and that effort and that care because it helps the project as a whole. Suppose it just completely overtakes your life for that process of producing it and production or whatever. Completely. I'm really interested in you working with Mark Billingham as your military advisor. Was he somebody that you knew already or did you get in touch with him to get his insight into what it would have been like being in Iraq at the time so my my mum's boyfriend actually knows him okay. quite well they're, they're good friends and when I started talking about this idea for the film he sort of put me in touch with him and originally it was supposed to just be like a quick chat um, but he was so insightful we got like two sentences into our conversation I got my phone out to record it just because he, he had so much knowledge of absolutely everything and and I at the end of the chat I had to say could you come to set and be our advisor you know and he did and he came and he kind of workshopped with the actors from the very basic stuff like you know how they hold their weapons and how they move around corners and how you clear a room to kind of going into the emotions they feel at those points and the, the way you have to suppress it at the time and how suppressing it at the time because you have to means that it just kind of sits inside you and comes out at a later date so that really helped performance wise for the actors as well so he was actually far more valuable than I initially thought he would be he really added a hell of a lot you've got to have that involvement when dealing with subjects like this because you can't do them half-heartedly like you said it's got to be perfect it's got to be spot on because you'll be having people watching the film that have been impacted by these topics themselves Oh, completely. And, you know, and, and people do watch out for these things. He, you know, even down to the netting they were wearing and the rifles they were using and the torches on the end of the rifles. He was so specific about what they would have had 2009 at this time in this place. And you need all of that. It, sometimes you say to yourself, does it need to be that? Will people notice that? But yes, people will notice that. So you've got you to gotta be rock solid on all of it. Yeah, someone somewhere will pick up on something. But Still Young, I'm really glad that we got to start off by talking about Still Young and people can check that out. It's on YouTube at the moment, isn't it? It is, yeah. YouTube and Vimeo, up on both. Yeah. For you as a director, someone that works behind the scenes, how did you keep yourself creative and keep working on things when we went into the initial stay-at-home period back in March? 
I had to keep a structure in my life because without it, I would just like swill down into this void of never getting out of bed and never doing any work. So I made sure I was getting up and I was running because a lot of my ideas and creativity come when I run in the mornings. And then I would give myself time to write. I think being stuck inside meant that you, you do have time to write more. Yeah. Like I said earlier, you know, you, you force yourself to come up with an idea. It's never going to be any good. So and, and I'm also terrible at writing in my room or in my house, even because I just feel like there's nothing feeding my brain. You know, I, I write best. I think I wrote the first draft of Still Young in Trafalgar Square. Oh, okay. <laughs> just yeah. like a I'm just like a, a notepad because I have a bit of life around me and you, your brain has stuff to kind of feed on and go off. You know, even even if it's not inspiring you directly, it's stimulating you a bit so being out listening to music allowing yourself times where you don't have to write really really helped with all of that and also I knew I knew sort of that the next film I wanted to make could be made within those lockdown restrictions so at least I had something to aim for that's something that so many of the guests that we've had on and probably so many artists in kind of wider society have discussed is that not just being able to see other people physically doing something and being able to feed off that energy, it makes it so much more difficult to draw creative inspiration. Absolutely. Am I right in thinking that you set up a short story competition at the start of lockdown? I did. I did. You have done your research. Well, Thoroughly. Yeah. It's exactly what you said. It's, it's creativity breeds creativity. I remember when I when I made that, it was in a particularly uncreative time. And I just wanted to see people I know dig inside their heads, see what was inspiring them. And then hopefully that would kind of rub off on me a bit. And it did work. I got quite a few submissions and I just enjoyed reading them and, and seeing other people passionate about something kind of sparks that in you again. So, yeah, everyone else you've had on is absolutely right. you got to in any way you can collaborate and talk about things and mix and and yeah all of that stuff is very important it's just so nice to see other people being creative like you said did you make any new connections through that or did you find any material that you may work on in future or was it generally just a really nice way of connecting with people who are passionate about making stories in general it, it was just a really nice way of connecting with people but what somebody sent me a story that I found really, really funny. His name was Monroe Gasquin. I went to uni with him and he sent something that was so funny that we ended up talking about the idea of making it into a mockumentary starring him about this about this guy who thinks he's like the Ned Ed, next Ed Sheeran, but he's just sort of awful. But he has the ego of someone who would hire a documentary crew to film him. You know, as you know, those like documentaries about where they began. He's like, he's like, well, I'm beginning, so get them filming me now. And that did come directly out of that competition. The type of character that will probably want to feature on this podcast by the sound of things. He would 100%, <laughs> he would reach out to you and he would say, put me on it, I'll be your best guest. Love it. Well, I can't wait maybe to be involved in the mockumentary in some way You're as in. a podcast host. We'll see what happens when that comes around. But what you were just talking about in terms of writing really links in with the artist's advice that we've got this week, which comes from Abraham Adeyeme, who's an award-winning director, his film No More Wings won Best Narrative Short at the Tribeca Film Festival. And as a writer, his work's been staged at venues like The Lyric, Hammersmith and Birmingham Rep. Anyone listening can find his full tip on our social media accounts. But he talks about a writing process and he says, in a career where it's hard to feel like you're progressing before you've made it, having routine and discipline means you're accountable for yourself, but also means you've manufactured a way to quantify progress, which can be quite encouraging. How do you, Marcos, go about writing something and do you monitor your progress as you're writing it or do you kind of 
create a concrete material and then go back and reflect on it once it's been completed? Very good question and very good quote as well. I think my favourite my favorite ideas come to be pretty formed. The ones that I have to work out or try and craft and, and manipulate don't tend to inspire me enough to stick at them. So I would say when I start, I generally have a pretty good idea of what it's about. Not necessarily what happens or what's said, but what is at the centre of the film. And from there, you're kind of taught in screenwriting school, you know, your first draft, just splurge it all out and then you can redraft and redraft and kind of clean it up later. But I'm very bad at that. If I'm writing something and I know it isn't good, I'm the kind of person who would type a sentence and delete it and type a sentence and just do that kind of over and over again, which is like a big no-no really in script writing because it takes you 100 years to write a scene. But yes, uh, I'm a big, I am a big one for redrafting. I can kind of obsess over going back over things and either reworking it or, or, or showing it to other people, seeing what they think. A thing I like to do is if I have the cast, I'll get them to, to read it, I'll record it, I'll listen back to it, I'll see how that was sounding and I'll rewrite based on them and their kind of chemistry. Because a lot of the things I write are just very character-based. It's about people and about relationships. A lot of my contemporaries at uni were writing these kind of big horror films or big concept pieces that had like cool visual motifs and design and, and all this kind of stuff. But I, all of my stuff, all the things I'm interested in, it's just about people and their interpersonal relationships. And so through that dialogue is a big chunk of my scripts. So getting actors to say the words out loud or just getting people to say the words out loud helps you with the rewrite process. So I'm, yeah, I'm constantly rewriting all the time. I was listening to a podcast today, the Two Shot podcast. It's very actor-based, and it was an interview with Rhys Shearsmith, who does League of Gentlemen and Inside Number Nine. And he was talking about how strict some directors and writers can be about the specific words that are written on a page. Mm. But for him, it's how it fits naturally with the person that's saying it, like you were saying. 100%. Each person has their own way of working a sentence and what fits naturally for them. Yeah, I know those writers and directors who are very, the script is the Bible and you say it beat for beat. You know, you got like Tarantino does that a lot. Aaron Sorkin does that a lot and I kind of worship at the feet of Aaron Sorkin but I'm not I'm certainly not him and I uh, and I think if you're that good at what you do then yeah you can be meticulous about those things but I'm far more of the you just got to work with the people you're making it with so that links to your latest project I suppose what now which you were working on Mm. during lockdown yes and I know you had that close relationship with the actors and reworking thing because our producer Ella was one of the two actors in it Would you like to tell us a little bit more about the project? Absolutely, I'd love to. One Now's the film I've just finished shooting with Ella. The Far from just being your co-producer, she's also a very talented actor. Actually, genuinely one of the best I've worked with. Her and Ned were so wonderful from start to finish. Essentially, it's a a car journey and a couple's relationship just sort of crumbles over the course of 10 minutes. That's so hard to play because they have to be comfortable with each other and you have to believe that they've been together for a long time. You also have to have this layer of animosity between them and things are going wrong. But even underneath a kind of veneer of them trying to act like everything's fine. So it's very dense and complicated thing to try and play. And I knew when I was trying to find the actors for it, I would have to find people who I was equally comfortable with and could get inspiration from and, and hear their voices a lot. So when I found Ella and Ned, Ned Costello was the, the guy who acts alongside Ella in the film, uh, immediately they were reading the script together and I was recording it and I was listening to it and I was getting their inputs and we had these long chats about 
how these characters would have met, what would have made them fall apart, what initially made them fall in love, what has gone wrong over the years, and their opinions on that inform their characters and their characters inform the rewrites and the rewrites informed how they performed it. And it was all this kind of working momentum to build it to the place it kind of got to. So yeah, completely agree. You've got to work with your actors and you've got to work with what you have. Did you write it during lockdown, just out of interest? The idea came in 2019, quite early 2019, something that happened between my girlfriend at the time and me. Obviously, I blew it a lot out of proportion and made both characters a lot worse. Sure. Uh, but, but, you know, so the idea in the writing process was, was before lockdown. How do you plan such an intricate process, like you said, that relies on getting a car suspended and being trailered along through the streets of London, which is extremely busy, maybe not so much now, but how do you plan a process like that when the restrictions and the rules are changing so frequently? You have to be a very good producer, which I've said I'm not. But luckily, <laughs> luckily, I was producing, I was co-producing it with my uh, creative wife, uh, Nick Milligan. He DP'd the film and he's an incredibly talented DP. And in fact, I, I knew that from day one when I met him and I kind of hitched my wagon to him immediately and wanted him to shoot everything because he makes it look very good. What is a DP? What is a DP's role? Yes. So a director of photography, they are in charge of the look of the film. So they, you know, everything from the lens choice to the lighting, to the colours, to the grade, they, they, they have kind of a hand in the look of the film. Basically, they, they do that. And he's sure. okay. marvellous at that. He's fantastic. You know, he's far more talented filmmaker on the whole than I am. All directing is, is finding people more talented than you and kind of banding them around and, and hoping that they make you better. That's a skill in itself, surely. I think it is. I think it is. I think it was smart <laughs> of me to, to grab him so early on. But as well as being uh, a great DP, he, he was a really good co-producer. And so I would have all these grand ideas. You know, for a while he was like, okay, maybe the car doesn't have to move. And I was being the kind of stubborn director of, of course it has to move. The, the conversation is a journey and so is their journey, their journey, you know, all the kind of stuff you do. And he was like, okay, well, if we're going to do that, we can't just turn yeah. up on the day and hope for the best. We have to plan how that works. So it was calling the Met Police and getting permission to use the certain roads, finding out which roads are owned by TFL and asking permission from them and then figuring out a route that keeps you under 40 miles an hour and then you have to go down the whole rabbit hole of strapping gear to the car and to the low loader and if the rigging protrudes past the the width of the car it's a whole different permission you have to get but all of that was motivated from me knowing I really wanted the car to be moving and then on top of that you've also got to consider covid restrictions and what's sensible yeah the 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 idea was the crew would be masked up and we brought hand sanitizer and then the actors were sort of bubbled to themselves inside the car and that was how we'd keep it kind of covid safe but with all the other stuff that we were having to worry about covid was almost like a it was pretty easy to deal with that actually sure certainly with a film like this when it is so contained to just two people in a car you know i'm, I'm sure in a much bigger production yeah it would have been a bigger challenge so for you dealing with the covid restrictions and the health and safety side of things was quite easy so there wasn't any point where you thought you know what i'm going to wait until the vaccine's out and things are back to normal you just knew that it was going to go for it no matter what well, when we were shooting it, we, you know, there was no talk of even a vaccine. It was just this kind of indeterminate amount of time. And I knew I wanted to get, the, I wanted to get it done. I hadn't shot a film since Still Young, which we started in 2018. And I knew if I wanted to progress closer and closer towards that kind of holy grail of a first feature, you've got to be making stuff and you've got to be getting your work out there and you have to have a body of work. So I was, I was pretty keen to just get the thing done. And I knew if there was any project that we were going to be able to do during lockdown, it was 
this one. Great. I really enjoy that sense of determination that at that time there was no light at the end of the tunnel, so we're just going to do it anyway. And that's a real big part of the podcast because of finding out what creative people do alongside that in order to make sure that they can continue being creative and seek out opportunities. Have you been working at all any other jobs during lockdown? Yes, I'm a building manager in Ilford by the day. <laughs> by day, by night, filmmaker extraordinaire. Yeah, so I, I, I work in Ilford. I started as a temp and the job is basically security. I, I'm, an, I'm a licensed security guard, so I went there originally to do security and then it kind of built and built up into I was sitting on reception and dealing with people's posts and residents arguing about car parking permits and getting contractors in. How did you end up being a licensed security guard? <laughs> That was a whole other thing. I moved to London with no plan of how I was going to be able to afford London prices. I just thought, oh, I'll go and Pinewood will knock on my door and I'll be a director. And when that didn't happen, again, Jim, my mum's boyfriend, came to the rescue again. He said, oh, I know a guy who does these courses for SIA licenses. You could just go along and get one of those and then you could work security. So I did the course and I went to Camden. And for a couple of months, I stood on a canal, guarding the canal. I, I still never figured out what I was guarding, to be honest. <laughs> I was just stood there most days with like a, a walkie-talkie and I was told to stop anyone dealing drugs or spray painting the walls. What would happen quite a lot is there'd be a, a group of very scary looking individuals doing something they shouldn't be doing. And then over my radio, the guys in the CCTV office would go, uh, yeah, Marcus, could you go and tell them to bugger off? And I'd be like, uh, do you want to come down and tell them to bugger off, actually? And I'll just stay here. <laughs> So no, I again, I'm not bigging myself up very much. I, I'm a licensed security guard, but I'm not particularly great at it. I'm not a great security guard. Better concierge. You must have got the chance to maybe scout out a couple of cool locations, potentially for shooting future projects. Yeah, and I, I, I certainly met some interesting characters who would inspire other characters. So yeah, it's all experience and it's all part of that. But I used to be a magician. I was actually a professional magician before I was a security guard. And that was a bit more interesting. Of course, because the, the two just go hand in hand. Yeah, aren't they? You Every magician goes from being a magician to being a security guard. It's part of, <laughs> part of the circle. So how, how did you find magic? Tell me a little bit more about that. Magic was prepare for the toppy story. When I was at school and I had no friends, I saw a magician one day and everybody loved him. And I thought, I want everyone to love me too. That looks great. I kind of got in that way, but I didn't actually show anyone for years. I just kind of practiced by myself, just obsessively, obsessively. I had the time. I didn't have any friends to speak to. I had the time to practice card tricks and coin tricks and stuff. And then eventually when I got to sixth form, I started showing people. That's when I really got into it because I met other magicians and they introduced me to other people. And eventually uh, I was talking with the best of the best, learning some big kind of grander secret stuff that, you know, that's just my magic circle type tricks. And then that was, you know, that kind of just springboarded to me getting the odd wedding and yeah, the yeah. Old village hall thing. And then it just became what I did for a while. Gigs like that, quite good money, especially at a young age, aren't they? But what was really interesting was that you just said, look at the attention they were getting. But as a magician, you need to be so good at commanding other people's attention. And do you feel like that's something that then has helped you feed through into directing? That was exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say I, I really do think directing is a lot like being a magician because being a magician is you convincing people of the story you're telling them. You might be telling them I'm putting the coin in this hand, but actually, you know, you're palming it off and putting it somewhere else, but you're telling them that story and you're drip feeding information. And I find being a director is about controlling the flow of information and controlling what to reveal at what time and the layers of that and the timing of that and the... It's an extremely valuable experience. They actually go hand in hand very well. 
I'm really interested in finding more about people's creative experience. I suppose magic's not only just a job in that sense, it's been really helpful to you creatively. But I'm really interested in your journey so far in particular, as I have no idea whatsoever as to how people get into filmmaking. But to begin with, what are your earliest memories of creating or performing as a child? When I was six years old, my younger sister was doing ballet and I was so jealous. I would force my mum to take me to the classes so I could do ballet too. But eventually I, I was getting so annoying about it. She was like, okay, I'm going, to get, I'm going to find you your own creative thing. I'm going to take you to the stage school. It was called Stagecoach every Saturday. And it was like a, a theatre, singing, dancing, acting group. One of my guests is currently a stagecoach teacher, actually. Sorry to interrupt. Really? Yeah, yeah, one of my guests, former, has turned to stagecoach during lockdown and is inspiring people like yourself that were doing it when they were younger. That's fantastic. I worked there for a little bit after I after oh, I left, cool. so I would have a lot to talk to about that. That's great. Yeah, no, but I went, I went, and I absolutely, completely fell in love with it. From the age of six to sixteen, I was convinced I was going to be an actor. That was what I was going to do. Sure. And then when it got to the point around sixteen, seventeen years old, where you have to start kind of taking it seriously and you have to think about drama schools and all that kind of stuff, I was looking around me and I was seeing so much talent. And I just had to sort of be honest with myself and say, look, I'm not, I'm not as good as these people, but I love the process and I love talking to them and I love working with them. If I was in a scene with someone, I would be more interested talking about the scene than performing it. So I, I slowly started to find myself enjoying the, the director seat because I would get frustrated at myself for not being able to be good as good as they were. So I just kind of let them do it. Okay. And then when I got to college, there was just a filmmaking class and I thought I'd try it. And day one, I was like, okay, this is the thing I'm going to do. It was only like an hour. We did only did like an hour of it every week. And uh, I obsessed over it. And I, I would go and I'd watch a bunch of films and I'd bring them in just to show people. And, and that gets you into the whole... Because there's two sides of being a director. There's like the kind of theatrical side where you have to think about the content and talking to the actors and finding the performances and finding the centre of the scene and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the technical side when it comes to filmmaking, which is the cameras and the lighting and the movement and the editing and, and all of that kind of stuff. And it just so happened that I, I loved both. You know, some people are uh, just the one thing or just the other thing. And they tend to, you know, become camera operators or they become theatre directors. Whereas if you can kind of wear both hats filmmaking is really sort of for you so that's how I found it through initially through acting yeah. and then failing as an actor finding that actually write, writing and directing was more my speed. I was thinking about it in preparation for our chat today and it's really interesting to me that tv and film are probably the most accessible forms of entertainment and we all watch tv and film when we're children yeah at school from a young age it's always theatre and drama and music that we're taught which aren't as accessible in some ways Um, and I just found that was quite fascinating that it's not until later in our education that we're allowed to explore these different opportunities and like you said it was like an hour a week at 16, 17. It was tiny and at no point did I think I could actually do it as a career and that's something that kind of annoys me about the film and tv industry certainly if you want to be one of the creative higher-ups is that there's there's all these gatekeepers at the very top and it feels like an impossible ceiling to kind of break through into that Uh, and I think that's still a problem now. And the best way to fight that is just to do it, is just to, okay, I'm going to make things. Because if, if you want to be a cameraman, then you start as a trainee and you work your way up to a second AD, third AD, and you kind of go that way. Yeah. But if you want to be a director or you want to be a writer, there's no route. You just have to do it. You just have to do it until somebody notices you. I think that's great advice. And I really enjoy this idea of a route um, 
for any one creative and any role that they're taking. People wear so many different hats to get to where they get to. So I'm really glad mm-hmm. that you said that. Am I right in thinking that you had a small role in one of the Transformers films? And how on earth did that come about? So when, when I was at university, I was in the, the lecture theatre and our, our film lecturer came in and he said, for any second years out there, I have a, a friend who's the location manager on a big Hollywood film and there's some roles going. I, I can't tell you what the film is, but I can tell you it's about cars that turn into other things. Mm, yeah. And immediately we were like, right, I'm getting my phone out. I'm emailing. I want that job immediately. And so, yeah, I got put on as a location marshal for a couple of days and they were filming at Stonehenge. Oh, okay. It was the most ridiculous three days I've ever spent, as you can imagine, on the Michael Bay film. Like, we got there on day one and there were eight helicopters flying around. And then you find out there's another six coming to film those eight helicopters because the helicopters were part of the scene. And, you know, you've got all these really cool cars driving around. You know Bumblebee? Yeah, yeah, the yellow one. Me and Nick had to push it out of a ditch because it was stuck in the mud, (laughs) which I never thought I'd have to do. I was like, doesn't this thing transform? Can't it just... Yeah, yeah, sort itself out. Sort itself out. And then the last day ended with they just blew up Stonehenge, but they didn't actually blow up Stonehenge. They built a fake Stonehenge, like a mile to the left of it and blew that up. And it was crazy three days. But yeah, that was fun. That was a really fun experience. If that doesn't whet your appetite for the film industry as a student, then I don't know what possibly could, to be honest. It sounds incredible. Oh, it was the perfect thing. It was amazing. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then and then me and Nick's last job was they'd just been filming this mass. It was like the kind of climax of the film and, and all these soldiers burst in and there's this big kind of gun fight. And then the whole unit moved locations and it was just me, Nick and a couple of the techies to pick up all the the shell casings of the bullets yeah, yeah. <laughs> couldn't just couldn't just leave them at Stonehenge so we spent like just an hour picking up these things but we were so excited by what we'd seen it was just yeah it was what it was a great day but like I said I have no idea how people go on to study film at university and what requirements are needed and part of the podcast is really hoping that people that may be 15 16 at the moment and are really unsure of creative careers or how to go about doing things can be able to have a bit of a listen and find out, oh, this person did this and that's how they've got to where they are now. What requirements and what courses did you have to have studied previously to get onto your course at uni? Uh, my course was great in that it didn't really, it's probably not a message to be sending, but it didn't care about grades so much. Okay. It cared about passion and experience. Which is important within a creative subject, isn't it? Yeah, it's that second one that's probably harder to get, experience. But what they mean is they don't mean experience on real sets. They just meant experience with cameras, with editing, with that kind of thing, which you can, which, you know, these days it's actually pretty easy to get hold of a camera and get hold of some editing software and kind of makes things. So I wrote a very big personal statement that was probably ridiculously over the top, but just talking about how much I love filmmaking. And then I sent in, I used to have a little YouTube channel that thank God is no longer visible to anyone. <laughs> but I, I like, I'd like shot some stupid things and cut them together myself. And it was like me playing all the roles, you know, that kind of stupid stuff. Sure. I think they saw a sort of passion and a drive for it. And that's how I got on the course. I went to Bournemouth University to do film production and cinematography. But then once you're there, if you want to take it further, if you want to go and do a master's or something, then it's about, it's about the work. But if you love it, like with all creative things, if you love it, it almost barely feels like work. It just feels like the thing you want to be doing that's even some of the advice that we've had some of our featured artists over the course of the podcast so what lies ahead for you then Marcos in terms of being a director me and Nick recently have been talking about a feature film 
because the kind of thing that puts you on the map is if you can nail that first feature film it puts you into a conversation that you're otherwise kind of not in and I've got I've got two other shorts that I'm writing that I would like to produce if the world starts to get a little bit more accepting of these kind of things yeah. but my future is we're going to kind of aim down this feature film route and hopefully get funding to do something bigger it would be nice to get sort of BFI funding or nice to get some outside funding to do that right, okay. uh, because the opening scene is a gigantic wedding with you know lots of extras and lots of things but that's yeah that, so that's the direction i'm heading try and get these next two shorts done in the next year everything permitting and then chase the feature film route nice well i look forward to that coming out and as we come to the end of the conversation i wish it could continue yeah i'm enjoying this this is great thanks for having me it's been so impassioned it's been yeah. so impassioned which has been wonderful <laughs> we're at a point now where you have the chance to mention or discuss some of the people or the organizations that have supported and inspired you so far in projects that you've been making and mm-hmm. deciding that you want to be a director uh the organization that's made me who i am now is stagecoach we talked about earlier uh they were wonderful also bournemouth university because they, they kind of instilled this want to be better and then if i had to thank one person in particular the person i've kind of if i've learned anything about directing i've learned from them is a man called john Legg. he ran the stagecoach hereford when i was six to 16 he gave me a job there and he's a genius. He's a theatre director and watching him direct over the last sort of 10 years has been my own personal masterclass into directing. He's fantastic. So he, uh, above any else, I, I have to thank for where I am. It's fascinating for me the amount of people that started doing something so young like Stagecoach or whether it was creating music with a person and they've always stuck through with them or they've even returned to them to gain more experience like you did when working there and some of my other guests have gone back to make music or direct with people that they spent a lot of their childhood with and I think those connections from an early age are just so important and they're the ones that stick with you and continue to inspire you when making like you just said. 100%. At the time, you know, you might not realise they're important and other people around you might not realise, but those are the ones that make you who you are. Brilliant. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to anyone that's been listening as well. Check out some of Marcus's stuff online. You could just give him a quick Google and you can find Still Young and his future work. Hopefully what now will be up on streaming services such as YouTube and whatnot very soon. But yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. A huge thanks to Marcos for taking part. It was fascinating to get the perspective of an emerging artist who works behind the camera. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Starts and Grafts on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Connor. Ella's been your producer. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. But until then, take care. Thank you.